The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm going to read this morning from 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to start in, in verse 5. Um, last week began a teaching a series through the book of 1 John. And what we want to focus uh, in this book is that every aspect of our life intersects with Jesus so that we are continually and increasingly transformed by the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus and his grace. And you'll see how incredibly practical this book is. Uh, We just had a beginning intro last week, and now you'll see how quickly we jump into some really great application in this passage. So let's read. Um, There's a book, uh, there's a Bible in front uh, of you in the chair rack, and if you don't have a Bible, please uh, take that with you. You can receive that as a gift from us to you. Otherwise, uh, let's find our place in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John's purpose in writing this book is, to his original audience and to us, is to show us what a life looks like when a person walks with Jesus. What does it look like every day when a person walks with Jesus, believes in Jesus, knows him, embraces him, and trusts in him? What does it look like in the day-to-day? I want you to imagine this situation. Uh, Imagine after the service this morning, you go outside and you're standing on the sidewalk and you're spending time with some friends and talking with some friends. And I walk up to you rather quickly, interrupt your conversation, and say, stop what you're doing right now and get out of here. And you might think, well, Pete's a, gosh, Pete's a jerk. Pete's in a bad mood. What did I do to him? I mean, what, what a guy. Or maybe at best you're thinking, he might just be having a rough day and you pray for me. But you see that something is wrong. It's a very rude thing to do. And then consider this same situation, but with a slight modification of the information I give you. I walk up to you rather quickly. I interrupt your conversation. I said, there's a rattlesnake six inches from your feet. Stop what you're doing right now and get out of here. Now all of a sudden, I'm not a jerk. I'm a friend. Now all of a sudden, I'm not in a bad mood. I'm actually looking out for you. I'm being kind to you. You see, Scripture is filled with warnings like this. Scripture is filled with abrupt and somewhat, they might seem like insensitive or harsh or uh, commands and, and expectations and warnings. 
There are imperatives in Scripture. Imperative is, here is what you have to do. There are commands. There are expectations. But there's always indicatives in Scripture as well. These indicatives are, here is what is true. Here is why you should do these things. And we can, interrupt, we can misunderstand so much of Scripture if we don't understand that these warnings, that these imperatives, that these commands, that these harsh, uh, harsh directions from God are laced with his indicatives, with his information, his truth of why we should do those things to begin with. And we see here in this passage a very clear truth, a very big indicative that we should understand, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then we see several verses after this indicative, we, we unpack the truth of how we should live in light of what we know, in light of that information. And if we divorce those passages, those harsh passages that we read from this first verse of this, this information, this truth of who God is, then we will see God as only a, an insensitive God, a harsh God, a, a misunderstood God, a God that is just barking orders at us all the time. So in light of this passage, I want to invite you to see three things as we do this this morning. First, to see information. What is this information about God that he wants us to know? Second, what is the application? How do we apply this information to our lives? And lastly, participation. So what what does God reveal about himself? How How do we live in light of this? And the participation actually is, I want to go directly into the Lord's Supper. That's our participation, to see how do we participate in what we know about God, how we should apply it to our life, and how it's expressed in part in the Lord's Supper. And so I hope that's a really, a really great time for us to dig into the passage and make it really come alive for us. And so, so let's dig in. So first, this information. What is this information? John says here, we are told that he, is, he says, I have been told something and now I'm telling it to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Before John is about to talk to us about God, he tells us about God. Before he says something to us, he has something to say to us about God. What is God like? God is light. The first picture that John wants us to see of God in this book is that God is light. There's no blemish. There's no stain. There is no sin on the character of God. Even the Son that gives light to the earth, has dark spots, has blemishes, has defects. But God is absolute perfection, absolute righteousness. God is morally pure and holy. Not only is God a light, but there is no darkness in him at all. The Greek language uses a a double negative in this passage, literally saying, in him is none, no darkness. Now, in the English, this is wrong, right? This is really bad grammar. And if you talk like that, in him there is none, no darkness. I might think you just came from like a NASCAR event or something like that. I can say that. I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, and, but in the Greek, it's actually great grammar. And it's actually one of the most effective ways of expressing a negative, of passionately expressing a negative. In him, there is no darkness at all. God has, has no small print. He has no ambiguity, no, no vagueness about him. His truth is, is perfect. We've been shopping around on Hotwire and, and doing things like that, looking for 
uh, vacation for this summer. We're taking some time uh, and looking at hotels and rental cars and things like that. And you know how frustrating this can be when you see the price and then you and then you book it and then you find out there's like there's 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 fees, there's taxes, and then you call the hotel. Uh, and they say there's like mandatory parking costs, and then there's like a resort fee on that. And before you know it, it's like 30 to 40 percent higher is your cost than what you thought it might be. When God presents Himself to us, there is no fine print. He re- reveals Himself to us in in authenticity and honesty, with no ambiguity. He has made Himself known to us, and what He makes known to us is not vague. He is light. He is truth. There is no darkness in him. And when we come to God, we find truth. We find light. In the positive sense, think about light. In in the positive sense, light is, it helps us avoid danger. It helps you to find what you're looking for. It helps you to know where you're going. In a negative sense, think of darkness. You may trip on a curb when you're walking in the middle of the night. You may step on a rattlesnake or fall off a cliff. Bad things happen in the dark. Nothing good happens after midnight, right? Right. The darkness presents so many challenges, so many opportunities to stumble, spiritually and practically. It frustrates your ability to get things done, to reach your goal, whether it be fixing your car and then the sun begins to go down, whether it means reading a book and, and you're losing the daylight. God is the source and measure of all that is true, all that is good. And so God is a, to us, he is a level. He is the measure of all that is right. If you hang a picture on the wall and you put a measure to it and you see that the the picture is actually, it's not straight, it's crooked, and you step back and you say, well, it looks straight to me. There are really two options. The level is false or you are false. The level is off or your, your perspective is off. Your eyesight is off. Your eyes are, one is higher than the other. Actually, I have one ear that's higher than the other, so I could say that. There is, there is no, with, with relation to God and what is true, there is no agree to disagree opportunity. There is no partnering between the level and our perspective and say, why don't we agree that we can both, from a different perspective, see that we are both right? So we might say, well, God is confused. God doesn't understand. God is misunderstood. But God is light, and in him there is no darkness. There is no blemish at all. And so when we want our picture to be straight, we don't move the level and say, okay, now it's straight. We actually move the picture to come into line to conform to the level that is, that is telling us what is straight. And God is that for us. He represents and is our perfect truth. And we are to measure everything in our life by his character and his truth. God is light. It's a reminder that God is who he is, no matter what we might think. No matter what we might think of God, He remains the same. He is and always was and always will be who He is, even if we disagree. And I believe if we get this, if we 
wrestle with this and understand and see that our perspective might be off, then everything else I think will click. Everything else in this passage, some of these hard things to really hear and to read, will will click for us. Because God is what He is. He defines everything that there is, seen and unseen, in our life. And particularly, He defines sin. He defines what sin is. And we can't ignore that if we're looking at this passage. Sin is talked about nine times in this short passage. They use this word nine times, sin or sinned. And so we go from this information, and now John wants to apply this information, knowing that God is the measure of all that is true. How do we apply this to our lives? The first application is this, is don't let sin lose its meaning in your life. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sin breaks fellowship with God Not sonship, not daughtership, not relationship, but fellowship. See, sonship is, we don't lose that when we break, when we sin. No more do you, when your child disobeys you, do you say, well, that's it. I'm going to go give you to the neighbors. They remain to be your child, but there is a barrier. There is fellowship that has been broken. And we need to understand in what way is fellowship with God broken when we sin. Sin grieves God. Sin puts a barrier between us and God in terms of fellowship. Sin blocks our view of where God is leading us. We become confused. We sit in darkness and we don't know where we're going. It's like living life with a blindfold on, trying to feel our way through life and saying, why is it so difficult? Why am I not hearing from God? Sin makes us a hypocrite. These are harsh words. Whether it be a sin, big or small, walking in darkness can begin when we we fail, when we fall into the trap of renaming our sins. So when when we see a sin and we rename it to give it a less dark name or a less sinful sounding name. So you're not losing your temper, you're just tired. You're not a liar, you just misspoke. You're not gossiping, you're sharing your concerns. You're not lusting, you're looking. So we, we become, we, we, we misunderstand sin and we minimize sin by giving it a new name. And darkness, by any other name, is still darkness. And it doesn't become any less dark by giving it a new name. The only way that you and I will ever hear the words from God, you are forgiven, is if we say the words, I have sinned. These are hard words, what John tells us. He says, if you say you have no sin, then the truth is not in you, and you are a liar. You are a hypocrite. And if we say we have fellowship with God, and yet go on sinning, and are governed by sin in our life, we are lying. We can't walk in darkness and be practicing the truth at the same time. We cannot be glorifying God and sinning at the same time. We cannot see His will for us clearly and be sinning at the same time. And the Bible, well, it affirms a couple realities that are that I think we should we should understand. And and as I'm reading this and I was studying this this prior week, I I found my my mind going to a particular place that I 
at first found I found very like energized, and then I found I found myself feeling very ashamed. And that was like this: I was I began to think about Christians who walk who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And I started thinking about all the people that need to hear this message, right? And the Bible affirms a couple realities. If a professing Christian is living contrary to the Bible on a regular basis, there is good reason to question the genuineness of that person's faith. Which is a scary thought. And yet the Bible also affirms that it is possible for a Christian, a genuine Christian, to to sin and be in periods of sin and yet be truly saved. And so it's difficult to understand, well, what is going on here? So my repentance to you and my confession to you and also my exhortation to you is to say that this is written to you for you, not written to you for somebody else. Thinking, oh, there's somebody that could really hear this. You know, they say they're a Christian, but they're not walking the walk. This is for us to say that we, as, if we confess that we are Christians, we should, we should hear these words and be cut to the heart to examine, do we walk that walk? Do our, does our life fit in and match up and conform to the truth of God and His character and His nature? And so we say, we think, how do we uncover these sins? How do we do this? Well, we, we read God's Word with thoughtfulness, with careful humility. We present ourselves and we ask God to reveal to us our heart and our desires. We see where our lives contradict God's character and nature and commands in Scripture. And then we make the proper spiritual adjustment in our life. Because I love Jesus and follow Him, I am going to hear what He says, and I'm going to look at my life carefully, and then I'm going to adjust my life to, to, to conform to His character and His truth. I'm going to adjust the frame on the wall to match up to what He says is true. Not compromise, not minimize, not argue, not change the name of it. I'm going to adjust. And in doing so, we approach this other application he goes into. He says, when we do this, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with God. And also, interesting enough, it says we have fellowship with one another. It's good to know that sin hurts our relationship and fellowship with God. It it also hurts our fellowship with other people. My sin in my life hurts you. And your sin in your life hurts me. And your sin hurts one another. And autonomy, and spiritual autonomy, and relational autonomy is a myth when it comes to to life, and and especially to the life of, of a Christian. To think that our sins are done in private, And in isolation is not true. And you know how this feels in your own soul. You know what this is like when you are struggling with some sin. I I rarely would ever imagine you hearing from you saying, you know what, my relationship with God is so bad right now, but I've never felt more close to my Christian friends. I don't know if anybody's ever said that because we see that when when, when our fellowship is broken, when there are barriers between us and God, we also, we, it spills over into our relationship, fellowship with other people. We start hiding our sin. We start putting up walls. We start being less vulnerable. We, we don't let people in to see our true self. 
There's a story of a man who's in a dark room. It's an analogy of a man who's in a dark room and with a man-eating monster and also this knight in armor with a sword and a shield. And the lights are off and it's pitch black and he fumbles around the room to find his way and he is drawn to the warmth and softness and comfort of this monster. And when he touches the knight and the sword, he, is, he draws back its cold metal he touches the, the sword in the wrong way, and, and, he, and he cuts his fingers, and he is, he is detracted from it. He resists it. And when the light turns on, he sees things as they really are. And when we see our sin as they really are, we see God, we see how God sees our sin. And we see the things that we were drawn to. We see it as it is. It's like, I was drawn to this comfort. I was drawn to this warmth. But this is the thing that wants to devour me. And the thing, the very thing that I was resisting, because in our sin we resist Christ. We are detracted from Him. We hide ourselves. That is the very thing that we need to run to. This is the very thing that will protect us and save us. But when we are in the dark, it's the thing that we don't want to be close to. We disarm our sins and bring the light of Christ into our life by exposing our sin, by calling it out, by confessing it, rather than covering it up. Confessing our sins and turning to Jesus in repentance. Uh, my son's two and a half, and I realize that my time is limited with how, how long I can go with talking about him in church, and I think that time is coming soon, but for the time being, I can still do that. You know, I'm talking about him in church. He's in middle school, and, Dad, come on. But now I, I'm, I can do that. I have the privilege of, of doing that, and um, he's easy to sneak up on, and it's really fun. Um, he, he's old enough to be uh, mischievous, and knows what he's doing when he's doing something wrong. You know, it hasn't always been the case. He used to just be, like, really mischievous, but he didn't know it was a bad thing. And now he actually knows. Like, whether it's, uh, you know, taking out all the baby wipes one by one, right? And I walk in, and I'm watching him just do this. Or whether he's, you know, painting with toothpaste or something. And uh, I, I see him do this, and I sneak up on him, and he's totally unaware. And I, can, I watch him for about 60 seconds, and he doesn't know I'm there. He has really bad just like social awareness, I think, like a lot of, a lot of young kids. And uh, it's like, I don't know, they have like only enough blood for one function or something like that, <laughs> like listening, eating, or playing, or destroying. They can't do two things at once. And it's hard to get mad when you catch him because the look on his face is so priceless. It's that look that unsuccessfully says, oh, hey, how did this happen? Well, <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and you know that if, if he were able, if he were intelligent enough to construct a well-woven story, he would. Like, this bird and a squirrel came in, and, I, and, 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 I, and, and Kate was telling, you know, and it's like he, you can just hear his wheels turning of just like thinking of some story to convince me, like, I had no part in this. And, but when he is startled, when I see him, when the light comes on, so to speak, and, he, and, and his actions are revealed... He wants, we want to cover it up. We want to make excuses. We want to minimize it. We want to try to manage it. We want to give it a new name to sound less ugly. We do all of these things to try to make our sin look like, well, gosh, I had no idea that that's what it was doing. I had no idea it had that kind of impact in my life. And when Jesus confronts us, it's exactly what we do. It's our, our natural tendency in our sinfulness to 
cover up that which we are ashamed of. And and I want you to see this significance of this this word in this verse in in chapter 2, verse 2. Just look at that. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And this may seem like, well, what does that mean? What does it have to do with this scenario? And I want to show you something beautiful because the root of this word, this is, I love, the root of this word propitiation, do you know what it means? It means to cover up. When the light is turned on, all we can think about is covering up our sin. And Jesus says, I cover up your sin. I am the only one capable of truly covering up your sin so that you are not held accountable for it. He covers up our sin when we stop trying to cover up our sin on our own. When we stop managing it and covering it and manipulating it and and giving it a new name and finally saying, okay, I have sinned before you. And I'm turning to you for hope and forgiveness. He says, then I truly cover it up. So because God is light, we should let sin, we shouldn't let sin lose its meaning, but we should actually, we should acknowledge its ugliness and its true meaning. And we should, and we should turn to Jesus to cover it up. And that leads to the last application. Don't let Christ's righteousness lose its meaning either. We don't want our sin to lose its meaning. We want to walk in the light. And we don't want to let the Christ's righteousness, what this means, to lose its meaning. The blood of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, has present impact and is capable of cleansing us from every single sin. There is cleansing available for all sins. This is good not only because we have a lot of sins, but we have some big sins too. You know what yours are. And maybe there are some that, you know, maybe there are a lot of what you might call little sins in your life that are just these these habitual returning to some practices or attitudes or behaviors that give you a lot of shame. But maybe there are some big sins in your life that you say, These are just hindering me. I don't feel free from them. Our sin cost Jesus his life. It cost him everything. And Jesus was willing to suffer so that you could hear this truth. That the blood of Christ cleanses people who confess their sins, who repent of their sins, and believe in the righteousness of Jesus who died for them. His death, his righteousness, his perfection is the basis of our forgiveness. I've heard, uh, I've heard it said, no one is scared into heaven. There are warnings in the Bible. There are a lot of commands in the Bible. There are scary things to hear. And even in this passage, you can't say you're a Christian in sin. If you do, you're a liar. But no one is scared into heaven. No one is manipulated into heaven. No one enters into heaven trembling with fear. No one gets to heaven by believing that you're just a really horrible person and God's going to get you. 
But salvation happens when the lights are turned on and we see the truth of Christ. We see His righteousness and His death on our behalf. I love that this says this in verse 2-1. Do you see what it calls Jesus? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. It's like a... I don't know, it's like a... It's like a kid's fantasy story or something. Some character. that Who is called that? Who can be called that? You know, Stuart the Righteous. Pete the Righteous. Lenny the Righteous. No one, no one is able to be called that. But he points this out so clearly. Jesus the Righteous. No one else is even close to earning that title. And he credits to us the righteousness that he earns. By faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us on our behalf. It's like you're poor, and all of a sudden you go to your bank account, and you're a millionaire. And you say, how on earth did that happen? I didn't do it. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. So it was put there as a promise and received by faith. A rich person. He's our everyday Jesus for everyday sin. For the big sins, for the small sins. Every day, it's it's a habit that can begin today. A habit of ours to habitually turn from sin and turn to Jesus who is our righteousness. To walk in the light, we should see evidence of God's grace in our life every day. We should see evidence in our life, that we are increasingly becoming more in love with Jesus, more obedient to Jesus, more in love with the commands He gives us, knowing that they bring us life. We stick close to His Word. 1 John is written to help us see what life is like when we walk with Jesus, when we are given eyes to see the surpassing worth of the light light of God. So, we should be deeply troubled by the, by the presence of sin in our life. That's a, a great application, something to think about. We should be deeply troubled and should not take any bit of, of character or attitude or thought or word, <coughs> or word that does not conform to the image, character, and nature of Jesus. I mean, it should really, really bother us. We should hate it. And so confess of those sins and turn to Christ because Jesus the righteous in whom there is no darkness has covered over your sins so that you and I don't need to cover over them ourselves. And knowing this, John would say, why on earth, I'm paraphrasing, why on earth would you do anything but? Why on earth would you turn to anything but? Why would you hide from, your, from this forgiveness? Why would you cover your sin? Why would you not bring it out into the light Turn to Him and be forgiven, be cleansed, He says. Be renewed, be restored. And that's, in fact, what we must do in order to be forgiven from Him. There is no other way. Repentance of unto life is turning from our sin and turning towards Jesus and saying, I look to you for my hope. I believe that you have died for my sins. And it's a sober thing to stand before Jesus and And realize that we can claim, we can't claim ignorance. We can't say, I I, I didn't know. We can't claim insanity. Well, I'm just crazy. 
we can't claim innocence. We definitely can't say, well, I've done no wrong. So our only hope is to claim Jesus. We can't claim any of those other things, but we can claim Christ. By faith, we claim him, and his righteousness becomes ours. And so we see this grace-motivated obedience, this, the foundation of our justification, the righteousness of Jesus, being right with God and being in a, uh, in a right relationship with him where there is no guilt or shame is the rightness of Christ, not the rightness of our character. And so I want to go into participation. I want to look at what does this look like for us as, as people who confess Christ and, and what does the Lord's Supper have to say to us as we dig into these harsh words, but we see this, this truth that has been revealed to us from John, is that we should acknowledge what Jesus has done on the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks. He says, he breaks bread and says, this is my body which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he takes the cup and he says, this is the This is my blood in the new covenant, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Stop covering over your sin. I see everything. I want to cover over your sin. And as you turn to me in faith, I do. I cover it up. And it is seen no more. It it has been atoned for and taken care of. And so we see that Jesus has died for us. He's lived the life that we should have lived, and he's died the death that we deserve to die. So that we can turn to him by faith and receive his forgiveness. We acknowledge the sin in our life. We realize every time we come to this table that Jesus died, that it cost God everything. It cost him his life. See, a lot of times we think of Jesus and we say, oh, he, because Jesus died on the cross, my sin has no consequences. But I think we should see that actually Jesus still hates, I mean, God still hates our sin so much that he gave it to his son and it, and it killed him. He still paid the penalty as a righteous judge, as a righteous God. He still took care, he still punished our sin by punishing Jesus. And then we rest in his completed work for us. We say, I can bring nothing to this table to earn any favor from God but my own sin. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. That is what this meal means. And so I want to participate in this, in this, in this real... I hope would be a sober and honest exercise and to to actually say a couple stanzas of the hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And where it says pastor, that's where I will speak. And where it says church, that's where I want you to speak. And so let's say this together. What can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? For our pardon, this I see. For our cleansing, this our plea. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.